Thanks, Pastor Nate. Good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm also one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest and want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. And I see a number of um, new faces that are visiting with us this morning. And so thank you for worshiping with us and with our community. And, and Nate, thank you for your words um, about Jesus and he, his lordship and the fact that as we pray this and as we mourn, we also know the end of the story, right? We know how this all ends. And we're going to come back to that here in a few minutes um, uh, as well. And so this morning we are, as you see from the front of your worship guide, we are beginning a new sermon series uh, in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. And uh, we have been over the last month working through uh, a mini-series on Sabbath and Sabbath way of life as part of our spiritual formation series. And over the course of this year, we are going to be dipping in and out of the book of Exodus with some more mini-series that take us back into some of the spiritual practices that we've been talking about. What does it mean for us to be the people of God, to be followers of Jesus Christ as people who live with the understanding and live in the reality of life with God under the rule of God? What does that look like for us? And so this uh, Exodus series is not just a separate thing from that, as we will see. But as we look at the book of Exodus, as we look at this story uh, of the people of God, the Israelites in the Old Testament, we will see some connections for us as well. We will learn from them. We will see who God is in their story. And so there will be some of those crossovers and some of those touch points as we continue on. And so... Before we get into uh, chapter one, I, I want to lay out where we're going in the book of Exodus. I want to give us some uh, framework to look at uh, as we begin to learn, as we begin to study this book. And, and I want to begin by saying a lot of times when we look at these first five books of the Old Testament, the books that we call the Pentateuch or, or these, these we, we look at them as, as kind of history books, the history of God's people, the Israelites. And I want to say up front that when we talk about this being history, we're not talking about it as some dispassionate, objective stating of facts. This is not a textbook. This is not, here are the facts, here's the history, here are the events. Now you make some conclusions that God wants you to make from this. These stories that we're going to be reading are more than just some cold, hard history. They are a theological history. They are teaching us who God is. They are teaching us what it means to live with that knowledge. As we have talked about over and over again here on Sunday mornings, as we've, we've looked uh, periodically at different books and different writings throughout the Old Testament, we see that the one truth that God continues to bring his people back to is that there is one God. There is one God, and that God is one. And we see over and over and over again that that is the message that is the message that God brings before his people, that he has to remind his people of over and over again. This is who I am, and this is what it means for you and your life to live with that knowledge that I am one, 
that the Lord your God is one. And so when we talk about the history of these books, when we talk about the events of Exodus, we believe that they were real events. We believe that these were real people, that these things really happened. They're not a myth. They're not a legend. They're not some allegorical style of writing that, that, that try to get us to see something that's not really there or to, to, to understand something that didn't really happen. We believe that these are true events. And some of the details as we read through these stories are going to be left out. But it's, not because, but it's because this is not supposed to be a textbook. This is not a textbook. What we have in front of us, the words that we are going to be reading and studying together is what God wants us to know. It's what God wants us to know about himself and about what it means to be a people that follow him. And one of the things that we will see over and over and over again is that the book of Exodus is foundational to our spiritual understanding. The book of Exodus is foundational to our spiritual understanding. I mean, think about this. Before the book of Exodus... There, was, there wasn't a context for words like Lamb of God, the Passover, the Ten Commandments. There was no law. There was no sacrificial system. There was no Ark of the Covenant, no tabernacle, no priesthood. There wasn't Israel as an independent nation. There was no understanding of God as Yahweh, the personal God the personal God of his people. And then after Exodus, think about this as we go to the New Testament. Think about John 3:16, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The verse right before that, Jesus compares himself to the snake that Moses lifted up in the desert. We would have no context for that. We wouldn't know what that meant without the book of Exodus. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb, which we will see in the book of Exodus. And in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul talks about what God does through his spirit to transform us, to allow us to see his glory, he compares that to Moses coming down off the mountain of Sinai with his face, un, with his face veiled. We would not have a context for understanding those metaphors, understanding those symbols of what it means to be spiritual people, what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ apart from the book of Exodus. These were real people. These were real events. These happened in a real place, in a real time. But as we read these, we understand that God's word is living and it's active. And what happened thousands and thousands of years ago, we read because it was meant to teach us in our present time and in our present day. So before we get into Exodus chapter one, I want to give you an overview of where we're going with Exodus. I want to talk about what is the message of Exodus as we look at this book and as we begin to step into a lot of these stories that a lot of us who have grown up in church know and we've heard over and over again, what's the point? Why was this written in the way it was written? What was it meant to teach us? And I want to look at two passages very quickly with you before we jump into Exodus 1. And the first is Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Listen to these words. 
This is Yahweh speaking. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And did you catch all those I statements? I am the Lord. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring you into the land. I am the Lord. What we see from that little passage of scripture and what we will see over and over again as we work through the book of Exodus is that Exodus isn't primarily about Israel. It's about God. Exodus is a book about God. It's about his glory. And as the people of God experience more of him, as their knowledge grows about him, as God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, as God parts the Red Seas and defeats their enemies and gives them the law, all of these things lead up to this climactic moment at the end of the book of Exodus in chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. What we see in these two passages is that God proves himself different from all of the other gods of all the other nations surrounding Israel. That God proves himself, as we saw in Exodus 6, that he is a powerful God, able to deliver his people, but also here in Exodus 40, that he is a God who chooses to dwell with his people. That God delivers his people, that God dwells with his people. And so as we move through this book together, what we will see over and over again is that Exodus is about God. He is the central character. His glory is the central theme. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 if you're not already there. You can find that on page 26 if you're using one of the Bibles on the seats around you. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible and you'd like to take that with you, please do that is our gift to you. Exodus chapter one. And we read starting in verse one, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, 
Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Joseph were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Exodus, the thing that we need to know here before we set out is that Exodus was not meant to be a standalone book. It's not meant to be read just by itself. The events of Exodus are connected to what had happened before. And if you were to look in the original language of the Hebrew, you would see that there's a word that begins this book that we don't translate into English just because it doesn't fit the way that we talk in English and the way that we begin sentences. But in the Hebrew, the book of Exodus begins with one word, and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. It's an and because everything that's about ready to be written is connected to what came before. This is not an isolated series of events. This is not a standalone period in, our, in the history of the, the people of God. These were events and people that were connected to the past. And in Genesis chapter 50, we read that Joseph, this man named Joseph, dies. And Joseph's father was Jacob whose father was Isaac, whose father was Abraham. And if you've read the book of Genesis, you will know that Abraham was a man who was called away from his homeland, away from his family, his people, by God to follow God, to be the father of a great nation that was promised to him by God, and that his inheritance, his descendants, would be in a specific land as a blessing, as, 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 a, as a covenant, God says, you will be the father of my people. I will be their God. You will be my people. Joseph, who we read about here in Exodus chapter one, was Jacob's 11th son. Joseph was especially loved by his father, Jacob. And because of that, he was hated by his jealous brothers hated so much that they conspired to sell him into slavery. And he was taken by slave traders and sold into slavery in the land of Egypt. But because of God's hand in his life, because of God's providence in his life, Joseph rose out of slavery to second in command in the Egyptian government. And because of his position in the Egyptian government, he was able to save the nation of Egypt during a famine that wiped out the entire land. And because he was able to save the land of Egypt, his brothers came because they were experiencing famine as well. And Joseph forgave his brothers for selling him into slavery. Joseph brings his family, including his father Jacob, to Egypt to live and gives them a piece of land within the nation of Egypt to call their own. And the writer of Exodus tells us here in these first verses that 70 people represented the nation that God had promised Abraham by the time that Joseph died. And the writer gives us that data point to show us how much Israel would then grow. Look at verse verse 7 of chapter 1. But the people of Israel were fruitful 
and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, filled the land. Does that language sound familiar? It's creation language. It's the language that God gave Adam and Eve, the mandate that he gave them to to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and rule over it. It's combined with the covenant language that God gave to Moses saying, I will increase you. I will multiply your descendants into a great nation. This is a sign as the people of God in this land of Egypt begin to grow and begin to multiply and begin to fill this land. It's a sign of God's presence with them, his blessing, God's continued faithfulness to them based on the covenant that he had made with their father, Abraham. And again and again and again, what we will see throughout the book of Exodus is that God comes back to this. God continues to come back to his promises. He says, I made this promise to Abraham. I made this covenant with Abraham. And that is why I'm doing this. That is why I'm acting this way. That is why I will deliver you out of slavery because I am God and I'm faithful to my promises. This is my promise, and I am faithful. But let's read on, verses 8 through 10. The people had multiplied. They had filled the land. They were experiencing the blessing of God. And in verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. A new Pharaoh, a new ruler of Egypt steps onto the scene. If you read later, I believe it's in Exodus chapter 12, you will see recorded that the people of God, the Israelites spent 430 years in the land of of Egypt. Think about that. 430 years. A lot can change in that time, right? A lot can change politically, socially, economically, culturally. A new Pharaoh, a new regime rises to power. And I was reading this week and some scholars believe, looking back at this period, that Joseph came to Egypt during a time, during a reign of a certain dynasty of rulers that were actually foreigners that had come in and conquered the land of Egypt. And so their rulers were not actually Egyptians, but as happens in 400 years, they were eventually overthrown by Egyptians. And Egyptians come, and a sense of nationalism grew. A sense of disdain for foreigners grew. And we see here that this new ruler steps onto the stage. And he chooses to ignore Joseph's contribution to Egyptian history. He chooses to ignore what Joseph had done. 
and the people that Joseph had brought, that had now multiplied, he saw as a threat. And because of his insecurity, he says, let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's come up with this plan to curb their multiplication. Plan A, let's make them slaves. Let's make them slaves. Let's keep enough Israelites around to build up the economy, but not enough to start a rebellion. And so they enslave God's people. But what happens? The more burdens that they put on the Israelites, the more that they oppress the Israelites, the more the Israelites multiply, the more that they increase. So Pharaoh moves to plan B. Kill all the male babies at birth. But what we read here is that the Israelites had midwives that helped the mothers in the birthing process. And we read that they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they use some conniving with Pharaoh. And they say, well, we can't do it. They give birth too fast. We can't get there in time. So plan B goes out the window. And what happens? God blesses these midwives and the people of God continue to grow. They grow even more. They multiply. So it's on to plan C. And what we see is that Pharaoh has moved with dealing shrewdly with the Israelites to outright evil and wickedness. Murder all of the male babies by throwing them into the river. And the writer of Exodus does not tell us what the outcome of this is, save for one baby, one child who was saved, one child who escapes. And we'll look at that next week in chapter two. But what we see here is that this ruler, this Pharaoh, becomes the anti-God. The fight isn't between this man and Israel. The fight isn't between this man and Moses, as we'll see in the coming chapters. This isn't about this man himself, but a king who thinks he can out-king God. The fight is between this ruler and the God of the universe. Pharaoh sets himself up in direct opposition of God's desire for his people to multiply and become a great nation. Pharaoh sets himself in direct opposition to God's plan to redeem his people out of slavery and lead them into the land that he had promised them. But what we will see is that each time Pharaoh opposes God, each time it seems like Pharaoh is winning, that Pharaoh is the strong man, God's plan proves stronger. God's power proves more powerful God's plan, God's presence, God's power. We can talk about that because we have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We can read this story and we can read what's happening here in Exodus chapter one because we know what happens later in Exodus. We know what happens later in history. But that's not how the author presents God here, is it? We don't see God's hand prominent. We don't see God visible. We don't see God stepping onto the scene. 
And I'm sure as we will see in chapter two, the questions that the people of God had then are some of the same questions that we wrestle through now. Where is God? Why is God letting this happen? What about those promises that God made? What about that future that we thought we had? What's happening to us? As we make some connections here to the book of Exodus, I think it's important for us, it's necessary for us, as we read this book and as we look at our own lives, to make two connections. And the first is this. God is always with his people, even when he seems absent. God is always present with his people, even when he seems absent. As we talked about from the beginning of this book, the writer of Exodus puts these events in the context of history. The present situation here in chapter 1 is part of a story that stretches back to the beginning of creation. Being able to see that bigger connection can give us hope. That's why he begins this book with a genealogy. And if you're like me and you run across genealogies as you're reading through your Bible plan for the year, that's an easy section to just kind of skip over, isn't it? They seem cumbersome. They seem uh, inconsequential. It's like, I don't know how to pronounce these names. Uh, I don't know what this means. I don't even know who these people were. This is the only time they were mentioned. The genealogies don't seem to have a point except when we realize that those names are there to connect the present with the past. Those names are there for us to read to connect our present with the past. Who we are now, who these people of Israel were then in this moment in Exodus chapter 1, were connected to the people who came before them and who they were. God had brought them to Egypt to protect them to continue his plan for them to, be, to multiply, to increase, to become a great nation, to become his people, to display his glory. But now they were being abused. They were being killed. They were being oppressed. The promises that God made to Abraham seemed so far away. And God himself seemed so far away. But we have the benefit in hindsight of knowing that he wasn't. God wasn't far away. He wasn't absent. He wasn't disconnected. He was there. And that's why we read scripture. That's why we are taking time to read this story thousands and thousands and thousands of years before us, a different people, a different culture, a different time. We read these things because we can expect that the God who dealt with his people then will deal with us in the same way now. That the God who was present then is the same God who is present now. And God shows up in the book of Exodus and he also shows up in our lives today through mighty acts of deliverance things that we can't explain, circumstances that he works out in miraculous ways. But he also shows up 
in the hundreds of little moments throughout our week, throughout our month, the 10,000 little moments that we have throughout our lives. God is always with his people, even during those times when his promises seem unfulfilled and when he himself seems far away. And that's why we don't read Exodus as some static history lesson. We watch God work then, and we know that he will work in our lives today. We see ourselves in his people then as well, right? We can see ourselves in the lives of his people, in their decisions, in the way that they respond to him and the way that they respond to their circumstances. It's been said that God brought the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, but it took a lot longer to get Egypt out of his people. And the same is true for us. And that's why this book connects so well with what we have been looking at with spiritual formation, that we know that God's ever-present work of shaping us and forming us is not unique to us today, but that he has done this with his people throughout history, shaping them, forming them, guiding them along life to make them into a people that display who he is and his glory. So the first connection that we make is that God is always with his people, even when he seems absent. And second, that God rules, even when our experience tells us otherwise. That God rules, even when our experience tells us otherwise. What we need to understand is that there will always be opposition to God's plan. There will always be a Pharaoh. There will always be people, governments, cultures, systems who oppose God. And they serve as a reminder to us that we in our present day are part of a war that has been waged since the beginning of time. We are part of a battle against Jesus, against the God of the universe, that the spiritual realm is real, that what we experience in our lives, the injustice, the wickedness, the persecution that we experience in our present day, that it's always been there. It's just taken different forms. And we need to be sober about that. We need, to be, we need to have a divine, a spiritual perspective about that. To know that this is not unique to us. That we are not isolated in this time of history. That what we are experiencing at the, as the people of God and the opposition that we experience to living life with God under the rule of God, that we stand on the shoulders of the people of God for generation after generation after generation before us. When it seems too much, when it seems too difficult, when the weight of following God and living with God as God's people in this world crushes us, as we experience hopelessness and discouragement and depression, as Pastor Nate talked about last week, the pain, the groaning, the cries for help, that we'll see here in the coming chapters of Exodus. God, where are you? Why is this happening? 
Why aren't the things that you have promised and the life that you desire, the world that you intended this to be, why is it not happening? When we experience those things, we know that just as God's people did then, that we can cry out. That we can cry out to a God who hears us and a God who will act. A God who is mighty to save. And a God who never loses sight of his purpose and plan. A God who is never caught off guard or unprepared. A God who is always working on behalf of his children. Yahweh is the God of history. He's the God of history and he is steady and he is sure. So what I want to encourage you with this morning is that as we look ahead in the coming weeks, as we dive into this book of Exodus, we can take heart. We can take heart and we can have hope. And the reason that we can have hope is that God's lordship, God's control over history is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. While God's people have been and will be engaged in an enduring struggle against the enemies of God, as I mentioned at the beginning, we know how this ends, don't we? We know the end of the story. We know that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God highly exalted him. And gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It is because we have a Savior, a Deliverer who lives, who reigns. That when we experience persecution, we know that he's there. When we walk through death, we know that he's walked through death. And we know that when everything is said and done, he will be seated high. He will be king. And everything that we experience about death and sin and the enemies of God will be put under his feet forever and ever and ever. I want to invite you this morning, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to come and to share in a meal together with us. As we take a piece of bread and as we dip it in the juice, we do so recognizing that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope in this world and gives us hope for eternity that we proclaim to ourselves and we proclaim to each other, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming back again. If you're not a Christian this morning, stay in your seat. This is a symbol. There's nothing magical about this. It doesn't get you in good with God. It simply is something that shows us and something that communicates to us what we really believe. And we would love to talk with you if that's you, if you're having trouble believing that, if you don't know what you believe about that, myself, Pastor Nate, others would love to talk to you about that after the service. Tony will be over here near these tables during our communion time. If you'd like to pray with somebody,
you're going through something, if you'd like someone to listen, Tony will be over there to do that with you, and I encourage you to do that. So let me pray, and then please come and take communion together with us. God, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that in the midst of life and all that life throws at us, that we know that you reign, that you are in control. But we also recognize that there are times that make it hard to believe that. And I do pray, as Tamise prayed earlier, that we would be a community of people in this city, in this country, in this world, that shine as lights. It doesn't mean that we have it all together. It doesn't mean that we ever get, never get angry. We never get frustrated. We never have our doubts. But I pray that we would continue in the face of hardship, in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, as we just navigate the cruddiness of this world, that we would be a people who do that with hope, that we would embrace the hardness, that we would embrace the difficulty at the same time acknowledging and holding fast that we serve the Savior who is alive and who is working on our behalf and who one day will come back and make all things new. And we pray that we would be a people that show everyone around us who the true God really is. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.